Welcome to Saving You is Killing Me, Loving Someone with an Addiction podcast. Loving someone with an addiction is a life of chaos. This podcast is to help you take back your power and build strength, hope, and restore peace in your life. We use the science and art of positive psychology, professionals in their field, along with personal stories of hope, resilience, and strength. We hope you can discover how the courage to focus on you can help put your life back together. When you are in a place of exhaustion, hopelessness, and emptiness, we are a community that knows all too well the turmoil that comes from loving someone with an addiction. We are here to help you compassionately struggle well. Hey there, Andrea Seidel here. I am so excited because I have such a great guest on the show today. I feel so honored to have Alan Berger, PhD, on this show. He's a popular public speaker and nationally recognized expert on the science of recovery. His most recent book is called Emotional Sobriety. Don't you just love that title? It's all about emotional freedom. So I am thrilled to have him on the show because he has actually written so many books and he is so well known within the world of sobriety and recovery. And I cannot wait for you to meet him. He is a registered psychotherapist. He just has so much knowledge that, um, you know what, once he gets talking, you just look out, there's going to be so many nuggets for you in there. So without further ado, I welcome Alan Berger to the show. And here is the recording of our discussion. Hey there, Andrea here. I'm so excited because I have such an amazing guest on the show and I know you are going to get so many actionable nuggets and just like aha moments from this guest because he is so knowledgeable and uh, we're going to talk everything to do with emotional sobriety and basically emotional freedom. And let's face it, when you love someone with an addiction, it can be quite emotionally full of turmoil. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Alan. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Andrea. And it's so true, isn't it, is that when we're in love with someone that's struggling, is that what's going on with them has such a huge impact on our lives. And, and you know, that's what your show is all about, is helping people who are struggling, you know, with that situation, finding themselves caught in that, I, I think of it as an emotional jail, isn't it? I mean, you're really trapped. You're held hostage by all of these dynamics that are going on. And, you know, emotional sobriety, I think, is the key to freedom from all of that. Oh, my gosh. Yay. Okay, so before we get to that, and yes. I know you have so much knowledge, I would, and I love the way you put that. I never even thought it's like we are held hostage. It sometimes feels like that when you're in the muck of loving someone with an addiction. And I really love the way you put it there. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, that's so much I can say, and <laughs> I don't mean to sound arrogant about that, but you know, I'm, I'm now 70 years old, so I've been around for some time. Um, I am a clinical psychologist, and I've been a psychologist for a number of years now, and been a practicing psychotherapist for over 50 years. So I've experienced a lot. My journey in recovery started back in 71. I'm a Vietnam combat veteran. I came back from Vietnam with a drug problem. I went in the Marine Corps at 17 years old. 
with an alcohol problem. I was a full-blown teenage alcoholic. Uh, came back from Vietnam, and in Vietnam, I experimented with drugs, and I had the same experience. If one was good, more was going to be better. I mean, that was the hallmark of addiction. I was addicted to more. I was very fortunate through a bunch of what I consider today either synchronicity or serendipity. I ended up being the third Marine treated in this program to help Vietnam vets that came back from Vietnam with a drug problem. So the, the way that vets were or, or Marines were dealt with that came back from Vietnam before was they were just discharged back to their community. And the problem was put back on, on the community that the, that the Marine was from. Well, the Marine Corps said, wait a minute, I think that we're deflecting our responsibility here, shirking our responsibility. And they decided to give us some help. So I was fortunate enough to be the third Marine admitted in this program that had just started in 1971 at the Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station. And they didn't know what they were doing, but they knew they didn't. So they turned to the AA community, which was quite active outside the base. And they invited some young people to come in and share their recovery stories with us. And on a Tuesday night, I'll never forget it, this hippie comes on the base, and we call it the Tuesday night recovery rap session. And instead <laughs> of talking about, you know, problems, we were talking about what does recovery look like, right? The positive side of the whole thing. And, you know, I emphasize that, by the way. I really think instead of talking about addiction, we need to be focusing on recovery, you know, and focusing on the solution, not on the problem. So this young man, he was in his early, probably mid-20s. I was 19 at the time. He comes on the base and walks into this room. It was 7 o'clock on, on Tuesday night. And I'll never forget it. There's about 20, 30 of us Marines standing around in our combat fatigues. And this hippie walks in the room. And we're looking at each other like, what is this hippie going to be talking to us about, right? <laughs> we were all these, these Vietnam vets, right? And this guy was probably protesting the war. So he comes in and he starts to share. And Andrea, I, I can't explain exactly what happened, but it was a magical moment. Um, first of all, I had never experienced another person, especially a man being so authentic, being willing to talk about his pain, his fears, his anxiety, you know, his insecurity, feelings and thoughts that I had that I would dare not share with anyone else because it, I felt like it would make me less of a man. And so what I couldn't, you know, conceptualize at that time that I was experiencing, I was experiencing a man that had a high degree of emotional freedom. He was free from the bondage of him, of his ego, of himself, Right. And that freedom was a mind blower to me. And the reason it was is because what I experienced when I was drinking and using was that it gave me freedom from myself. So here I saw somebody who was experiencing exactly what I was looking for that I could only find through drugs, who was finding it through living his life a certain way. So I, you know, a part of me said, if I could achieve that in my life, 
I think I could make life work. I think life could be okay. I think that I could, you know, find a way to be a part of this experience here in the world and, and, and really make it work out. And so I went up to him after the meeting and I said, how did you do that? I mean, it's like, I'm, it was mind blowing to me. And he says, stick close and I'll show you. And I did. Um, Tom is still my sponsor today. You know, this summer I'll be celebrating 51 years of being clean and sober. So an awful lot of time. And it's just changed my life completely, completely. He's a dear friend. In addition to a sponsor today, I've never been closer to anyone in my life. You know, I love that man like he's family to me now today. And we've gone through many losses together recently. He lost his wife, but he's been with me through my divorces, through through my successes and failures as I've been with him. And it's just been an unbelievable, um, valuable relationship. And I think he would say both ways, you know, that now at this point, it's much more reciprocal, our relationship than it's ever been. So that was my journey. So after I got excited about recovery, I, you know, you know, because I got turned on to recovery. That was the first thing that happened. Then the, the program, it was brand new. They didn't have any counselors. So I had about 60 days clean. They said, hey, would you like to be a counselor? <laughs> and I said, sounds like a great idea, right? I mean, beats pushing a 105 millimeter howitzer around the base, right? So I came on board as a counselor. And I fell in love with helping people. I just thought, my goodness, if I could do this the rest of my life, what a career, you know. And it really turned out that my evocation or became my vocation. And I really, I, I'm still as excited about what I do after doing it for 50 years today as I was at the beginning, if not more. So that happened. And then the third thing that happened I went back to school because I said, I want to become a clinical psychologist. Well, I, I was a high school dropout because of my addiction. And um, it took a long, long time. But I started school back in 1971 at the, uh, on the base. I went to Chaminade College and I took an oceanography class. And then that's the third thing that happened to me. I fell in love with learning and education. And, and, I, and then I went back to school and from from 1971 to 1987, I was in school, 16 years. And then I finally graduated from the University of California, Davis, with a doctorate in clinical psychology. So what a journey. And then along the way, you know, I'm always integrating recovery with what I'm learning in psychology. So I think people look at my work. Um, first of all, I think I'm, I'm, I have a un some unique qualifications because I've been in recovery so long. And I'm also a trained psychologist. I've been able to integrate the recovery and 12-step community and the ideas in the 12-step approach to recovery with what I've learned is in psychology and psychotherapy. So you'll see my work is this interesting integration of modern psychotherapy with the 12 steps. So it's pretty, it's really cool. I mean, I think I really bring a special, special thing. And, you know, I've been writing books since, you know, for a long time now. I have uh, currently five, uh, six books published. 
My first book was on relationships, Love Secrets Revealed, all that I learned from Dr. Kempler. Maybe that's another show we can have about <laughs> work I do with, with couples and stuff. But then I started to write about recovery. And my first book in recovery was 12 Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery. And that became a bestseller. That sold over 100,000 copies now with Hazleton. And it continues to sell a lot of copies. It's very, very helpful. A lot of people that are starting their recovery journey get a lot out of it. And then I just kept building on that theme, on the 12 theme, right? The next book was about emotional sobriety, 12 smart things. Then we did a book about making amends, the 12 hidden rewards of making amends, because that's so important in the recovery process. And then the last book was 12 more stupid things. Because <laughs> <laughs> I could write many of those, right? <laughs> My final book, which is with a new publisher, Fourth Dimension Publishing, which, you know, I really, really appreciate Kristen. She's the president of that organization and she's wonderful and it's given me some incredible support. She published my most recent book, which is the 12 Essential Insights for Emotional Sobriety. And um, that's really taking all that I've learned about this important topic and kind of laying out, well, what happens to a person and their consciousness as they start to do this work, as they start to wake up and start to see, you know, what interferes with emotional freedom and then how to deal with that to achieve emotional freedom. Oh my gosh. Like I literally don't even want to speak because I just want you to keep speaking because it's just so incredible. And I cannot thank you for sharing that journey. And I it is such a beautiful, remarkable journey at that. And I love that you turn pain into purpose and um, the fact that you were able to, you know, keep following your passion. And then the fact that in your, you literally are radiating like such positive energy and you are just yourself an example of what's possible. And, um, you know, it took that, that one interaction with Tom and like, look at the ripple effects of how you are touching millions with your books and and your support and, and everything that you do. So I feel so honored to have you here on the show. And um, I'm honored to be here, Andrea, because you, you have that energy too. And I, I said that in the beginning when I met you, I just love, you know, you are so, you know, excited about what you're doing and it's contagious. I mean, I feel that inside me and you found your purpose. I can see that. Yes. And you know what? We don't want to put pain to waste. <laughs> and um, I always say that, and I love the way you do it, because as you know, I'm obsessed with positive psychology. And if we can study what's not well with people, we can also study how people can flourish. And so I love how you brought that up in terms of focusing on recovery instead of addictions, like shifting the lens to looking at the solutions instead of the problem. And uh, I just, I think that's so incredible. So let's jump into this idea of emotional emotional sobriety. And, and, and the thing that you brought up that was so profound was this idea of freedom from yourself is what you discovered. So for the listeners, you know, how, how let's first answer the question, I guess, about what is emotional sobriety? Well, you know, you, you captured it when, you know, you, when you focused in on the emotional freedom, the, the, there, there's some um, words that I think would be synonymous with emotional sobriety. Um, autonomy, Yes. Right. Uh, Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, you or a co-founder, used the term true independence of spirit. I like that one. That's that captures a nice true independence of spirit. Autonomy is another word. 
uh, emotional maturity. I think that we could describe it best as what emotional maturity is, right? Um, I think that um, emotional sobriety is also um, di being differentiated. Now, that's going to take some explaining in terms of what that means. So we can come back to that at some point later on. But being differentiated. Um, when I say emotional autonomy, you know, what it means is that we are no longer being controlled by what I call the I'm okay if attitude. See, where all of us get hung up in life, and I say all of us because I think everybody in our culture especially suffers from this, is we have this idea that if if life is what it's supposed to be and people do what they should do, I'll be okay. So we attach our well-being to all of these rules that we have about how things should be and how things are supposed to be. So, for example, if you and I are dating, I'll have all these rules about how you should act to make me feel good about being your boyfriend. You know, if you love me, you won't want to do anything without me. If you love me, you'll do what I say. I mean, all of these crazy rules. If that, you love me, you wouldn't do drugs. <laughs> ah, whoa, isn't that a big one, right? If you love me, you treat me with respect all the time. If you love me, you'd never get mad at me. How could you get mad at me, right? I mean, these crazy rules, right? So I, I love this one. Virginia Satir noted this one. She says, if you love me, you'll know what I want before I even have to ask you for it. I mean, how crazy is that? I mean, we put that on another person to do to show their love. But if if my well-being is dependent on you being the way I think you're supposed to be, even though I might be right, I'm not saying I'm wrong about those things, even though that would probably be a great way to be. It doesn't mean people are going to be the way I think they should be. But if my well-being is attached to that, if I'm okay, if now I'm in trouble because it means you control how I feel. So if you treat me according to my rules, I'm a happy man. I'm the happiest man in the world. Look at Andrea loves me. <laughs> but if you don't do that, I'm in the shitter. I don't know what to do. I feel bad about myself. I'm anxious. I have all these things. And then I got to try to control and manipulate you, you know, and I'll say things to you. Now, you know, that's you're not being the way you should be. If you really were a good person, you would do this X, Y, Z to try to shame you into being what I want you to be. Or if that doesn't work, then I might you try to use my power and I'll threaten you that if you don't straighten out, I'm going to leave you. And, you know, and it gets so pretty. So, Andrea, we just got cut off. So isn't this interesting? We're just talking about I'm okay if, right? Things go my way. And then all of a sudden, we're having this wonderful conversation. We're in the flow. You and I are like, you know, we're really just, just rocking and rolling, right? And all of a sudden, I'm gone. We had a power outage. The power shut down out here. So everything shut down. My com I had to boot my computer back up. The lights went out. It, you know, it, so unfortunately... I'm not stuck with the I'm okay if. Now I can talk to you about the other part of it. See, so that's the it. 
the mentality is, and see, this is what emotional dependency does. And it's what people talk about when they talk about codependency. Before codependency was talked about, what we understood happened in relationships was that we were emotionally dependent on each other. And emotional dependency is the result of a certain level of emotional development. You see, when we're early in our development, of course, we are completely dependent on our environment to be okay. So the I'm okay if is appropriate. As a child inside my mother's womb, I'm being given everything I need to have life. She's given me my oxygen. She's feeding me. She's carrying me around. I've got a full-time Uber. I mean, it's, it's right. I get everything I need in the world. Then I'm born, and the first thing I have to do is now start to support myself. Well, I can't do that completely yet. I'm unable to walk. But what I can do, and this is the first step towards our maturity, is I breathe for myself. We take a breath. And that's why breath work becomes so important. You hear people talking about it all the time, Andrea, is, is breath work. Pay attention to your breathing because that's the first step towards us standing on our own two feet, towards our emotional and physical autonomy. Now, as we develop, right, we keep developing these, this ability to take care of ourselves. Around a year, we want to walk. Nobody has to tell you that. Nobody had to tell you to breathe, by the way. You wanted to do that because you wanted to be alive. You wanted to walk because it was, your, it was a possibility that you wanted to realize. You see, the wonderful thing that you and I have inside of us is this, is this force, this life force that grows us to be what we can be. Isn't that amazing that we have that? So you don't tell a child to walk. The child wants to walk. Now, what happens when the child starts to walk? Well, at first, the child's going to fall. The child's going to fall a lot of times. Now, thank God that we didn't have these rules in our head about, look, I get to try to walk 20 times. If I don't make it by time 20, I'm going to give up this walking stuff. We will fall as many times as we need to until we master the art of walking. And then what we'll do, we're not satisfied with walking, we're going to start learning to run, right? Because that's what who we are, right? We keep moving towards fulfilling our potential, towards being whole. I love that, fulfilling our potential. Okay, you say so many amazing things here. So basically this... Yes, this concept of emotional sobriety is really about emotional freedom. It's about feeling like you have influence over your environment and you're in control of your own, you know, your own well-being. And I love how you say it's like take focus on what you can do, even if it's as simple as starting with breath to build up this sense of autonomy to feel like you have influence over your life. I'm not sure if I'm explaining it like. Oh, you got it. No, see, you're obviously very bright because you you captured it in in its essence i can't i you know like i said the mentality of i'm okay if means i got to try to control people places and things around me to be okay 
when I get that I can't do that, and it's not easy getting there through a lot of pain and suffering, right? We realize no matter what, I'm not able to control that person and get them to be what I want them to be. Now my job is, is to deal with that person as they are, to deal with reality as it is. And that's where emotional sobriety comes in. That's where we start to grow up. When I start to figure out, well, how do I cope with this situation? Someone I love is addicted and they can't find their recovery. How do I stay in relationship to them if that's what I want to do and still be okay? Not easy. That's a tall order. I mean, I'm not saying that, I, but it is a possibility when you unhook your well-being from that person and their behavior. I love that. Unhooking yourself. And I swear like that the moment you do that, it's there's so much freedom. That's and the freedom. That's the freedom. And I love the way you put it, emotional freedom. Like it's literally, it's the second you tap back in. I love the way you put it too. We all have that spark. We all have that life force. We all seek to fulfill our potential. And so um, just the way you describe it is so, so wonderful. And this idea of uh, like unhooking, how did you say it? Unhook? Unhook my, unhook my well-being from how they're behaving. Now it doesn't mean I can feel good when somebody I love is suffering. No, but it do, it means I don't have to go down the drain with them as they're flushing themselves down the drain. Yes. That's the thing. I can stand there and feel my pain and feel how sad this is, but I don't need and, and be okay with feeling sad because that just means I love them. See, the other thing we got to get look at in our society, we have a lot of these nonsense ideas that, that somehow life is about being happy. Well, <laughs> I enjoy happiness like everybody else, but that's only one side of the coin. For me, life is about being alive. And being alive means I embrace my happiness and I also embrace my sadness. I embrace the yes in my life and I embrace the no in my life. I'm able to fully experience life. See, that to me is the goal. Now, that's the potential I have is to be a fully functioning human being. But that doesn't mean being happy all the time. Right. That means sometimes being scared, sometimes being anxious, sometimes being sad, being happy, joyful, excited, like I am being here with you. That's a wonderful feeling. But if for something came up and we sat here and cried together, I'd enjoy that too. Not in a sadistic way, not that I'd enjoy your pain. It would be that I would have a connection with you at that level as well. Ah, oh, so true. And, and my second chapter is basically in my book is, is it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, and yeah. the reality is this emotional agility and recognizing sometimes with positive psychology, that's the critique. It's like, oh, hap like you're happy all the time or like, but that's not what it is. It's embracing the whole gamut of emotions. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, it's not like sweeping those emotions under the carpet and just putting on a smile and, you know, pretending you're happy. Well, and so I love that you, you bring that up. Yeah. I want to read you book now so you I'll, we got a deal i'll send you my book you send me your book that's a deal so here's the other thing i even i could take that a little even farther not only is it it's okay to not be okay not being okay doesn't mean there's trouble so this is what i say to people is trouble is a signaling device that tells me 
there's something, there's a next step in my development I need to take. So the trouble highlights where I need to grow myself. And this is the wonderful thing about relationships, and it's also the curse. Relationships are people growers. They grow people into what they can be. But that only happens if you show up for the lesson. Mm -hmm. And if you understand that this pain and suffering is not caused by the other person, but is caused by my relationship to that other person and my expectations about what should be happening. And when I start to look at things that way, which I think you probably advocate as well, now I can see where I hook myself onto these things. You know, where I set myself up, where I create my own existence. It's not what they're doing to me. You know, it's not what's happening to me. It's how I, it's the meaning I give to it and, and, and how I struggle with it. Oh, so true. I have a new favorite word now. It's called unhug. <laughs> yeah, you like that's, that. That, that. That's yeah. gold. Um, and I love the way you say it too, because I always say our emotions are there for a reason. They're telling us something, right? They're teaching us. It's like, it's keeping us safe. So if we were to just sweep them under the carpets, like we're not really looking at them and looking for these opportunities to grow and learn. And so I love that you bring that up and, 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 and say it again. You said that the trouble is where we grow. Yeah, so, the trouble doesn't mean something's wrong. It's kind of like it's okay not to be okay because not being okay, like in the other context, we said, oh, look, sometimes you're going to be sad. But let's say I'm anxious, you know, and if I'm saying I'm anxious because of you, and this is the language, we have to listen to our language because in our culture, our culture is a very emotionally immature culture. And, you know, I hope we don't have to sell anybody on that idea. Just look around at what goes on. We pay guys millions of dollars and even women to play basketball or football. We pay our teachers sixty dollars to $80,000 to teach children. There's something wrong with our values there. How come that guy playing basketball isn't making $80,000 and our teachers are getting a million dollars to teach our kids? Because they're the most important resource we have in our culture. Now, nothing wrong with entertainment. I love being entertained. And I appreciate those folks and their skills. But you see where our values lie in terms of where we put our money. So, so that's the first thing we got to understand is this culture we live in is not based on wisdom. It is not a wisdom-based culture. It's a very immature culture. It says, I am more the more I have. That's what this culture says. It's that's such a setup for so many problems, right? It means that I am defined by what I have, not by who I am, not by my character, but by my image. <laughs> you know? is, yeah, it is sad um, for sure. It's like, um, and you raise something and all the teachers are literally going, yeah, I like this Alan guy. <laughs> right. Yeah, give him, give him a raise. Every yeah. one of them, you deserve it. I love you guys. Thank yeah, you. me Thank too. You. All right. So let's, let's think about, so the, so some of the listeners are still in the muck of loving someone with an addiction. Some of the listeners are parents of, you know, children, um, 
who may be, you know, sober or, or, you know, in recovery or, you know, in active addiction. So we're, we have a lot of different people in different places. So what would you suggest um, that would really help them with this idea of unhooking and tapping into their life force and this autonomy or emotional freedom? What's the first step they can well, do? I, I think the first step is in, in this is, is very important in order to become free you have to become aware how you're not free. Oh, that's good. You cannot just jump over that awareness. There's no bypass. There's no spiritual bypass to get to the other side. If I'm going to be free, then I have to become aware how my, my, how my emotions, how my well-being is determined by this emotional dependency, by this being emotionally immature or undifferentiated. That's a term I'll use synonymous with emotional immaturity. If, if I am emotionally immature, then my well-being is so dependent on you. I have to realize that's the problem, not what you're doing, but how I'm in relationship to what you're doing. See, that's the first awareness that I need to, to have. If I get that, then guess what goes out of my language is blame. I don't need to blame you for how, who you are. You are being who you are. That's not, you know, that's unfortunate, but that's, you, you know, you're not making me suffer. I'm suffering by the meaning I give to what you're doing. So if I can first understand that, I might be able to start to get to a place, as we said, unhook my well-being from you and how to be in a relationship with you where I take responsibility for how I'm feeling rather than blame you for what's going on with me. So the first thing we do is we got to get rid of blame. Yes. Blame, then, uh, it's not like you said, it's not a part of the solution. It's a part of the problem. Yeah. And it does promote some, like you feel like a victim when you're blaming. It's like you feel like a victim in that Right. It's as disempowering. As you, yes. As soon as you get to that victim place, you're disempowered. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying these things aren't terrible and that you don't feel victimized by them. Of course they are. They're horrible situations and horrible things happen to people. But whether you become a victim of that is a whole different thing. People, let's say in a hurricane, they're victims of that hurricane. There's no question about it. A woman that's been raped, she's a victim of that that rape. You know, we're in, in no way am I saying there's no such thing as being victimized. There is. People yeah. get victimized. Those, God bless those folks in Texas that are going through what they're going through. It's horrible. They've been victim of a terrible shooting, you know, and mass killing down there. That's horrible. My heart, I cry when I see those children, right? I'm so touched deeply by them. How those people are going to deal with this is going to determine whether they become a victim of it or whether they experience what we talk about today is post-traumatic growth. You know, how do we digest an experience as horrendous as that and still find something in it that we can grow ourselves, whether in a spiritual direction or some other way? And see, that's the gift of this, is that it's not what happens to us, it's how we deal with it. That's the key to freedom right there. Yes. Oh my gosh. You're speaking my language right now. 
Um, so many things like, yeah. So I love how you say that in order to feel freedom, we have to first find out where we're not free, where we're hooked into our, our, you know, well-being is determined by someone else around us or the people around us. And then changing the narrative to a place of, okay, like, um, where even in the most traumatic experiences, like you said, you know, there is opportunities for growth. There's opportunities for connection. There's opportunities to be of service. And like, you know, like how we were saying in the beginning, we turned our pain into purpose. We, you know, um, and so I really, I, and the other thing that stood out to me too, is the word immature sort of has a negative comment connotation to it slightly. I was like, what? I'm not immature. <laughs> well, but I, know I that see what you're saying. It's unfortunate that people take it that way because I look at it's, we don't say that about someone who can't walk. We say they're immature because physically they're, they haven't matured yet. So we don't put a judgment on it. And I don't mean to put a judgment on it. You know, if, if some, I like the word undifferentiated better, yeah. but, but that word is hard because people don't have, they, they don't understand what it means, but, but what it means is when I'm undifferentiated, then it means that I am, depending on my environment for support instead of being able to support myself. Bingo. So if, if we think of maturity as a transcendence of environmental support to self-support, the transcendence of environmental support to self-support, that's what maturity looks like. So when I am so dependent on you to be okay, I'm dependent on my environment to support me and to help me feel good about myself. We call it other validated self-esteem, right? It's other validated self-esteem. It's dependent on how you treat me is how I'm going to feel about myself. As I differentiate from you, means separate from you, that's what differentiation is, and I stand on my own two feet, how you feel about me still might matter to me, but you don't define me. I define me. Oh, that's gold. Yes. Yes. Okay. So the listeners are thinking and they're, they're agreeing with this and um, they're thinking, so how do I do that? How do I do that? <laughs> that's the, the million dollar question. Right? Well, listen, Slow and steady. The first step is, is to become aware how you're not doing it. Yes. You got to become aware of who you're not before you can be who you are. Love it. Got to be aware of who you're not before you can be who you are. So now that step is is difficult because, like you said, I don't like to think of myself as immature. The truth of it is, is the the more I accept my immaturity, the more mature I become. <laughs> and that's I don't know how to get around that paradox. It's paradoxical. The, I sell it. Tell everybody, you know, the more I I realize how stupid I can be, the smarter I became. <laughs> it's no. kind of like the more that I learn, the more I realize I don't know. <laughs> Same thing, right? Yes. It's so true. The more so ignorant true. I am, I that I accept of my ignorance, the more I can be educated. But I can't be educated by you if I don't if I don't own what I don't know. See, in this is this is the problem with our human existence, right? Our human dilemma. People think they're supposed to be someone other than who they are to be okay. See, an elephant doesn't sit around saying, damn, I wish I was a giraffe. Look at that beautiful slender neck. 
that giraffe gets such a better, you know, perspective of the serendipity or, or whatever, serendipity, you know, of, of the of the of the horizon and the vista and stuff like I'm stuck down here and I got to trudge along with it. If I was a giraffe, I'd be OK. Well, that's what we do. If I was so that thing that I'm OK, if we don't just put it on people, we put it on ourselves. Oh, I love that. I'm okay if, and then turn it on yourself. Put it on. If I'm okay, if I'm a giraffe, God, if I was a giraffe, I'd be fine. You know, and then I think I got to make myself into a draft to be okay. And then I reject myself, but how can I have a life that's, that works well if I start by saying who I am is not okay. Hmm. I not gonna happen, right? That person, that rejection. So if now this is where now it, we really get into an important thing, and I know we're getting short on time, but I'll say this, and then we can wrap it up or meet again because I really like you. <laughs> I like, I like you too. <laughs> I like being on your show a lot. So here's the thing: if I reject myself, you see, that makes me even more dependent on whether you like me or not, yes. because now. Because I have now thrown myself away, your acceptance of me becomes even more important. So true. Your validation of me is going to determine if I'm okay or not. So even this idea that if I was a giraffe and, and, and when I'm an elephant, if I was that giraffe, my idea is that if I was that giraffe, you would love me and accept me. So I create this image of who I have to be to be loved and accepted by you to belong. Uh, Now that image starts to run my life. So emotional sobriety is also unhooking ourselves from all shoulds and supposed tos, whether they're the shoulds and supposed tos I put on you or the shoulds and supposed tos I put on me. We call those unenforceable rules that are based on claims and demands, and they don't work. They're not a path to freedom. Getting people to do what you think they should do is not gonna make you okay. What's gonna make you okay is finding a way to be okay, whether people do what they should do or not, and whether you live up to the expectation you have and start to challenge some of the ideas of who you think you should be. Yes, oh my gosh. I feel like there's so many, so much homework here. <laughs> Like journal needs to happen too. So I love this concept of detaching from the shoulds and the supposed tos. And that's one way to take back your power is like really recognizing how someone else should be acting and behaving, but also the turning it. I love how you said it, like flip it onto yourself. Like instead of, you know, thinking that, you know, putting the onus on your well-being on someone else, it's turning it inward and taking focus on yourself. And recognizing when you're enforcing, what'd you call them? Unenforceable rules. Yeah. Like it's, you're trying to enforce something that even with addiction is really messy because Real you messy. can't, you, that's so hard to enforce, right? That you can't, I always said, I can't compete with addiction. <laughs> so, um, so I love that. Okay. So yes, we are, I could talk to you all day long and I know we will definitely have you back because you're, you have so much knowledge and experience to share. And I just can't thank you enough for being here. But if there is one final thing, um, kind of talking about what we talked about, just to summarize for the listeners, what would that be? Well, I think it would be if, if you're disturbed, Try to understand where you're off, now where everybody else is off. 
right? You start to do this inner searching and, and start in, and once again, not to blame yourself, but to try to identify what hooks you in, what makes you so dependent on things being a certain way for you to be okay. That will begin your road to freedom. Ah, oh, so good. I love it. Inner search, but inner search with love and self-compassion. Right, that's it. See, it's not blaming self. It's just being almost curious. See, the one thing I would say, so if you say wrap it up in one word, really, really nurture your curiosity. Mm. Nurture your curiosity because that will, that will, if you really let that move you, it's going to move you into identifying a lot of the things that we were talking about today. Ah, thank you so much. I'm so grateful for you being here. And of course, I'm going to put all the links in our show notes. So people, because they're going to want to get a hold of you. They're going to want to purchase your book. I I will send you the link to the Thursday night meeting. We have an emotional sobriety study group on that fourth dimension of publishing has. And listen, please send me your address. I will send you my book and I'll send you my address and, and I'll get, I hopefully get your book. Yay, of course. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening. If you want additional support, you can head on over to our website at savingyouiskillingme.com where we have a wonderful, supportive, compassionate community. We are here for you. You are not alone. We also have a private Facebook group and Instagram feed called Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. Be sure to subscribe here so you get the latest episodes. And of course, share this with your community and your support groups or anyone that's going through this struggle so we can all work together to take our lives back and restore joy. Thank you so much for joining me, not only today, but week after week. Although I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, I'm so grateful that I get to show up for you and share these episodes so that we can go on this journey together. Until next week, sending hugs.